Now, last week on this Thursday, uh, I tried to get a little bit tricky with the French, but I'm just going to make it simple. The first part of it was merci, which is thank you. I got a little bit more complex with beaucoup, which is much, thank you, much. Tried to put it together with a conjunction for, might have muffed that pronunciation, but thank you for mercy. That's what this psalm is about. And so we visited uh, in Chronicles uh, an episode in which David was newly crowned in Jerusalem. And as soon as he was, he was attacked, or at least heard word of an attack, by the Philistines. And so we tried to tie that all in with the predicament of being for God, grateful to him, considering his goodness, but realizing that it is a very vindictive, very sinister, evil world. And as a result, we need to see the mercy of God in those times. I think I forgot to excuse the kids. Okay, <laughs> thanks, Michael. And so that's where we picked up, you know, last week, the early legacy of David who didn't take the throne by storm. Rather, he took the throne because God had availed it to him. And as soon as he had, there was spiritual warfare that translated into the predicament of godless people pursuing him. And whenever there is a time in which godly people are pursued by godless people or a system in the world, then one of the things that we have to inventory is God's goodness in spite of it and his mercy that prevails through it. That in what we, I believe, need to revisit a word that's very special as far as our country goes, the providential hand of God, how he really goes before his people and ensures that what he purposes to get done, he will get it done. This particular psalm is credited uh, as one of the processional psalms, one of the dedicatory psalms for what was going on with the tabernacle. David is considered to be the inspiration of this, which is why we went back and tagged the early diplomacy of David to do things that were right in God's eyes according to bringing the ark back. That was one of his goals was to bring that ark into the city to tabernacle with God. God always intended to tabernacle with God's people. And so when we look at this psalm today in light of that, you know, maybe for us, it's a time to inventory the goodness of God and the goodness of God and the emphasis of his mercy. And somehow today, we've either acknowledged God mercifully revealing himself providentially in our life, or maybe we have the need to reconsider that couple of things that as we move into this, it opens with, I think, just a great focus. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, there are at least over 500 entries within the Old Testament with the Jewish understanding of God's goodness. And so one of the things that actually comes to our attention, at least it does to me, is the first thing that God mentions. I'm going to tag just two areas of Scripture back in Genesis because it's important to link good with God. For without God, nothing is good. And God is the giver of good things, and he's obviously delivered a message of heaven for the salvation of men. We call that the good news, because out there there's a lot of bad news, there's a lot of false news, fake news. But everything that we read of in the Bible is true news. And it's also not new. It's a fresh word given historically by God through the agency of men. And one of the first things that we see here, if you'll look in the first chapter of Genesis, is that God saw the light. And normally, we write songs about we see the light. But God saw what he had created, because that's what's being spoken of. The earth was in darkness. There was a turmoil upon the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. So there was some kind of calamity that's attributed to a cataclysmic event. And God comes in by the picture of the Spirit moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. That's an important contrast because many of us have seen darkness and we have found ourselves in a wave of, if you would, the unexpected. Who would have thought that was coming? Well, that isn't alluded to here, but it's a picture that in times of darkness, troubled waters. God knows how to precisely shine in those seasons and times. But here's the emphasis on this phrase right now. Let there be light. There was light. Notice this. God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. The reason that's important for correlating the Psalms is it gives us from 118 to the beginning of chapter 1 in Genesis is always a storyline which precedes, for instance, a question mark. Why is that happening? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, there was a happening, there was an event. It was extraordinary though we can conjecture what happened, the important thing is that God interceded. In other words, we could say this was one of the first acts of mercy that God revealed. Something cataclysmic did happen, but the mercy of God did not allow it to be the final punctuation. He created something. All of a sudden, something became different. It wasn't the same. It was affected. So when we talk about in Psalm 18, 
there's an appeal both to the nation, to the priesthood, and the individuals of Israel to mark with assurance and conviction the goodness of God and to acknowledge him in mercy. They didn't get what they deserved. They got mercy and the goodness of God in preservation of them. Now, I'm going to turn the page because there's another area that I want to mark that kind of concludes just before chapter 2. But notice this, because there are other areas of pronounced goodness. God said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's all good. It's not all good. But God is good, and what he says is good is good. That's why I usually don't say, as a part of my vernacular, it's all good. <laughs> I don't believe that. There's a lot of bad. God's good, and he does good. And the people of God, because of the work of the Lord in our life, he says, good. I have good for you, and you're my good and special people. But in this 31st verse, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So I like that that adjective there, very good. I like that, serving both as well as a verb, very good, extra special. And what he says in the close of that chapter, very good. So the evening and the morning were on the sixth day. And so I think as well as a tribute, it's important to acknowledge the very goodness of God and his mercy. The goodness of God, who he is, he's a good God, but the very goodness of God. That special acknowledgement that identifies deeply where you have journaled what he's done for you. So Psalm 118, as this poet begins to reflect, it's really just this, it's this uprising within him to acknowledge God. And so in verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. So we went back to what's called the principle of first mention, when good is identified and it's spoken from God's mouth. There really is a wonderful um, association with God when we say it's good, and we're quoting God and what God has said is good. His creative work and his sovereignty in all creation is good. He's not a bad God, and the things that he does are not bad. What may be allowed by God never have the intention of confirming that he has been outplayed by the enemy. And we have to understand that. For everything that happens that we would say is bad, that's not God's fault. What we will see is God's faithfulness in the fault of man and in the ferocious nature of Satan to make things that God has put his name on and has pronounced as good. And we need to understand that it's one of the best words that you can use. And whether you're using that compliment towards someone or the things that someone has done, it is a very reverent term. I know that we use it 
casually, but I also believe that maybe in the usage of it, God is actually extolling himself. One of the crackers that I remember as a child that just took off in sales was because of a man who was very influential in TV land. And I liked the guy, and probably many of you are familiar with him. But his show was as a sheriff, and he had a bumbling sidekick, Barney Fife, and Andy Griffith was the actor's name, and you just knitted with him because you knew that Mayberry was going to be okay. No matter what was happening in the town of Mayberry, even with Barney, it was going to be okay. They used that personality that Andy Griffith genuinely, I believe, was in real life. He was also a great singer, a believer. But he was employed by the Ritz Cracker Company, which I think is formed by Nabisco. And what he would say after getting his grubbers into a little round cellophane bag of these Ritz is he'd bite it. And he'd go, good cracker, good cracker. And the next thing you know, those Ritz are flying off the shelves because Andy put his seal of approval on the goodness of Nabisco's cracker. And so I actually am still persuaded to get a Ritz cracker, even though I've at times been led astray by other cracker companies because Andy's whispering in my ear, good cracker, good cracker. And so mom would come home and go, what in the world happened? And, you know, we're brushing the crackers from our face. And there were only a few that got the Nabisco. We were the ones that got into it faster and ran harder. Others were left with the saltine. They were premium, but they weren't Ritz crackers. You could never say that about a premium saltine cracker. You could only say it about the Ritz cracker. So where is this going? <laughs> TV land. It's simply saying that I believe that the usage of that word is actually very special. And I think that it's not necessarily that I'm linking it with Andy. I'm saying that the power of that word good has great influence. It's one that I think we ought to use with great reverence and to really say it in the context of God meant what he said. When he surveyed all of creation, he made a boast in everything that he had designed and put in working order. And by the way, just so that you know this, inclusive to chapter one is actually the proclamation of a man and woman whom God created, male and female, in the image of God he created them. It's actually the first testimony of God putting at the apex of all creation his design for family. Chapter 2 is kind of a zoom in to tell us how in the beginning he fashioned a man, but created in that man a desire ultimately to experience the need for a fellowship that God didn't feel by any means rejected in, but that he'd purposed to satisfy the inner desire of a man to be knitted together with someone very uniquely different, but in the similitude of. You may say, 
Is that what this psalm is talking about? I'm bringing you simply back to an origin of, of thought that everything in conclusion in chapter 1 of Genesis says, can you take it back to the beginning? Can you take it back to the beginning of love? Can you take it back to the beginning of something in which God allowed your hands to be a creative force for good? Can you take it back to a point in which maybe so much of where you're at right now has to deal with the fact that the Ritz cracker was always there, it was within reach, but somehow the convenience of the saltine is what you settled for. And so you began to lose the voice and the emphasis of God in which you said, good, good marriage, good country, good church, good food. And so Israel was told by this psalmist because it's exhortative. But it's exhortative in one of those, you know how exhortation means that you're getting basically a, a pep talk. You're, you're getting a, a charge to change the attitude that you have and to rise up to where it needs to be. In this, you're to give thanks to the Lord because he's good. For his mercy endures forever. His goodness is linked with mercy. Now, just so you understand how goodness is reflected in God's nature, there are some points to consider. It means approved. One of the things to understand about goodness is that it has an approval with it. God has approved of us through the approval that he gave to his son. Behold, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And so our link to Jesus makes each one of us in a very special way an exclamation of God's goodness. In other words, it's pleasing to God to give us pleasures because of his goodness to us. And one of the pleasures that he gives us in being good is mercy that endures forever. It's not that you do not qualify for another act of mercy from God. If anything, we have been pre-qualified for acts of mercy that at times we do not acknowledge, but that God is saying, it's a part of my goodness. It's what I do. I like the phrase we've We've heard it used. It's becoming kind of a catchphrase. It's what we do. <laughs> I'm not sure who voiced that. But see, God would say, actually, that's what I do. That's good. That's good. And it's anchored with my mercy. That in my goodness, there are expectancies that you will come out of a situation different than what you imagined it or what other people believed would happen to you. You know, I got a call from somebody just maybe a couple of hours before the study, or actually I called that person hours before the study. And it was because on the phone call that I'd received earlier in the day, there was a desperation in his voice. I miscued and believed it was about someone, but actually in calling him, he told me it was about himself, what he was going through, where he was at spiritually. 
And so I just beckoned him. I said, first of all, it's been a while since we've seen you. So why don't you come tonight? And if you can't come tonight, come tomorrow. And we will pray for you and what you're going through. Because what you're sharing with me is a blaming of God, but that's not God. God is good. And what you've done is you've removed yourself from the presence of God in pursuit of things that your flesh has craved. And the incident and the consequence is what you're struggling and suffering through right now. But that's not God. God is for you. God is with you. And you're in a time right now where the crisis that you find yourself in is actually the consequence of the decision you've made. Let it go. Whatever it is that's holding you, let it go. Throw it away. There were things that were mentioned in terms of what that would be. I said, throw it away in a manner that can never be retrieved again. And then come. And of course, the reasoning was, well, I don't have a Bible. I'll get you one. I got lots of them. Well, you already gave me another one. I'll give you another one. You can have one every single year. You can have one every single month. We've got enough Bibles to give you. But God is good, and his goodness is revealed in the word, and that's where you need to be. So even right now, as this is implored by this psalmist with regard to the goodness of God and his mercy that endures forever, we need to be able to tell people that God is good and his mercy endures forever. Because if not, what they presume by the enemy is that God's judging them and there's no place nor hope for them and it leads them into despair. And despair creates an opportunity for anxiety and depression and then what people will do in order to be free of that bondage, that guilt. They'll do something stupid. And we've seen that. So he's good. His mercy endures forever. Good also means skilled. God's a skillful God. He's created us as a master craftsman. And he has purpose for us to do good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what culture nation can boast in that? Can't. We can only boast in a God who has signatured us off as trophies of his goodness and his mercy, and it is amazing. His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. That's imperative. The now means now. Do it. Say it. Our nation needs to say the mercy of the Lord endures forever. The church needs to be able to say, because Aaron was the priest, the priesthood needs to be able to say, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. The congregant, the one who takes 
a special trip on special days to come into the house for a special work needs to be able to say the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Because every single person that comes in is a special work of God to a special place designed by God to build this up. Needs to be able to leave here with a soulful act of revival that has happened to them. I do. I know that for certain that the days that I am here, both as a pastor and teacher, but also a private citizen, meaning that I come in here not only as a vocational pastor, but I come in here in the morning times as literally just a resigned citizen of God. And I leave here feeling as though there has been something special that has happened to me. Even though there's a lot of stuff out there that has inadvertently affected me like it does you, when I come in here and I purpose to claim this now, 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 not later, I told this guy, now's the time. Come tonight. Come tomorrow. I hear what you're saying. You don't think you're ready. You don't think you're good enough. You think that you've messed up too much. Come and see what the Lord will do in his goodness and mercy. So this applies to the nation. It applies to the priesthood. It applies to the everyday pilgrim whose faith has been vested in the Lord and his benefits have been invested in us, in gifts, in talents, in provision. God's good. He's good all the time. He's good all the time. And so the mercy of God endures forever, so you can't outrun it. And you'll never be able to commit any offense towards God in which his mercy will be subdued in your life and there's a difference between the corrective hand of God which verse 17 and 18 move us into which even that God would say is an act of mercy and the discipline of the individual let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever so that's what we are to now say his mercy endures forever Globally, his mercy endures forever. Nationally, his mercy endures forever. Spiritually, his mercy endures forever. Institutionally, his mercy endures forever. Personally, his mercy towards me endures forever. That means forever. It's almost as if it's a double word. His mercy endures forever. It's like two positives. It's like God confirming. It's going to endure how long? Forever. Forever it will endure. You mean it's going to endure forever? Yes, forever it will endure. You mean enduring forever? Yes, forever enduring, enduring forever. And because of that, we have an enduring reason to stay connected to the Lord devotionally because he's that impressive. Even in times that warrant us to feel depressive, he is so impressive in that alone. And guess what? It's always the crises that tests 
the validity of that being a part of our life. It's not when things are going great. It's when we extol the greatness of God when things are going hard. All of us will go through something. Most of us are presently. And we model the excellency of our relationship by doing one thing. His mercy endures forever. Now say it. Now say it. Now believe it. Now live it. Live it. Amen. <laughs> Amen. His mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me. A confirmation that we will be going through distress. But the Lord answered me. I remember that there was a time in Seascape. So that was the other building we were in, which was our church. And somebody, one of the little kids, one of the little kids left a Sunday school paper on my guitar case. And I was talking to the Lord as the service closed and people eventually left. And on my guitar case was this in crayon, just beautiful crayon colors, prayer answered. And I'm just going, oh my goodness. Because a messenger from the nursery or wherever class they were in was just assigned by God to confirm to me that he heard my prayer. And it was in this, I saved it some, from somewhere. And isn't that cool? Prayer answered. Prayer answered. Has the Lord answered your prayer? Or do you believe that much like me, in the innocence of the scrawling of a child from Sunday school, it was as dynamic of a confirmation as if Gabriel had visited me. I saved it. Maybe tonight there's something that in these verses, God's saying, that's for you. My mercy endures forever. That's for you. And so I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and noticed this, set me in a broad place. More than you expected, God did because his mercy endures forever, setting you in a broad place. See, we always think that God's going to be limited in his placement of us, but it's really not true. Very often, God displaces us to show us that in his perfect timing, he will place us in a broad space, prepared beforehand by God that you will walk in it, you'll walk to it, you'll live there. I've seen time and time again where the cry for, I don't know where to go, I don't know how I'm going to get there. And my answer is always, but God does. Let's pray and see what the Lord will do. My pastor was so confident in that reality that he would always confirm what perhaps for me was an unknown by saying, God knows. Trust in the Lord. He's got you in his hands. He's got you in his control.
And I had to accept those words, even though in the moment of time, it didn't make a lot of sense with evaluating the situation. But in distress, I was able to be reoriented to even what I didn't know to believe in God who knew everything. And he just asked me to believe. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me, set me in a broad place. And the Lord, verse 6, is on my side. Oh, there may be lots of people that don't side with me or side with you, or they're taking sides. We have a nation that's divided clearly on that. But this is very comforting to hear. He's on my side. Whose side is the Lord's on? If you're on his side, he's on your side. If you're not on his side, then you've taken sides and you want to change. That's nothing to do with those of you present. I'm confident of that, nor those who are listening. But there is a people who have not yet submitted to the invitation of God to have peace with God, and therefore they are in enmity of God. They've set themselves up as enemies of the Lord. His mercy endures forever. While they draw breath, his mercy endures forever. But there's a time in which that breath will not be able to be drawn nor expelled, except in the last moment of that person's life. And so his mercy endures forever until that time in which that decision not having been made brings that person before the Lord. And if they're not with Jesus, they will be absent of the presence of God. But for us, it continues to say, what can man do to me? And this is the fearless life. What can man do to me? What can corrupt men do to me? If God has appointed me to live a tenure on earth that has limitations, there's a day in which I shall not live on earth, but I shall be taken into heaven, then what can man do to me? And why will I, why will I fear the worst of the thoughts of what a man can do to me if God says his thoughts are always upon me? And the translation of this life into the eternal to be with him forever is nothing. It really isn't. From God's perspective, it's nothing greater than a paper cut. Though none of us like that per se experience, it's interesting how just a small edge of a piece of paper can cut us. And yet we really don't think much of it except, wow, I got cut in that. It's the same in terms of the finality of our tenure on earth. It's nothing other than that. Man can't do anything to us that the Lord hasn't completely covered and what he has already done for us. He's guaranteed us a place to be with him. The Lord in verse 7 is for me among those who help me. See, even in this, it's a comforting verse. You've been helped by people. Every single one of us have been helped by people. And the Lord's basically saying, I'm with you. Those people who are helping you 
are from me. Why? Because the first verse tells us he's good and his mercy endures forever. And so when you are able to credit somebody in what they've done for you, and every one of us can, that's God basically reintroducing himself as not only being on your side, but he's for me. He is with me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire in those who hate me. Interesting term there. You know, what does that mean? I shall see my desire. Most of us would say that that could be a vindictive statement, meaning that I hope they get everything they deserve. But actually, to the one that is spirit-filled, the examination would test how much do you love those who hate you. That's always the reality of the believer. It's easy to love those who love you. But what if the desire on your enemy is that they become your friend and they become saved? Paul would say, rightly so, I was an enemy of the church. I was cruel, vindictive, calculating. I had power and authority. I hurt people in what at that time was my ignorance of God. And no one would deny that Paul, once he was converted, once his heart had changed, was not the, one of the most profoundly used architects of the New Testament truth and the principles of grace and of mercy because God gave him a chance on a given day in which he would not be the same. So what if somebody like Paul came into our life and we said, oh, that the desire of what I want for that guy comes out in the consequence of his life. So the implication could be that there's a judgment pending. But remember, the other term for judgment is an adjudication of fairness, reasonable and just, as opposed to consequential and terminating. And it tests your faith when you all of a sudden have to love one who has declared themselves to be your enemy. That's a real test of faith, real test of faith. Therefore, I shall see my desire in those who hate me. It is better, verse 8, to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. And this is still true. But when your faith and your trust and confidence is in the Lord, he gives you discernment on those whom you may take, indeed, into your confidence, into your trusting confidence. That's what's so uniquely important about the body of Christ. We trust each other as family members with things that concern the things that are deep in, in each one of us. So people that put their trust in princes, guess what? Every election year or two, they find themselves disappointed, some more than others. Those who put their confidence in just man, man's ingenuity, man's humanitarian spirit, they will find themselves disappointed. But when your confidence is put in the Lord, you can trust the Lord for whom he puts 
his spirit upon and how they will be a useful person in your life. All nations, verse 10, surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. So the psalmist moves right now into kind of a national evaluation of basically the enemies that were enemies of God. Remember, Israel was an exclusive nation, and it was a nation that was established to be governed by God. So when you hear of this, it really is in defense of God. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. And this is basically poetic language saying they were coming in so many different directions and they had literally at their disposal the things that not only could cause great pain, but basically take my life. My twin brother was stung so many times on one of his reconnaissance missions uh, that he became allergic to bees, so he always has to have one of those, whatever they are, EpiPen. If he gets stung by one little bee that made my honey for my peanut butter sandwich, he dies and I get to wipe my mouth with the honey that that bee in his lineage. And it's weird, but his body reacted to those massive stings, and so he cannot be stung. He has to have that EpiPen. And he's had to use it several times when he was actually out uh, in, at that time, Iraq, where he served. So I don't know that for myself. But this psalmist right now is saying those little creatures that sting and poison, they were subdued. They were the enemies like a brambled stick, a dry twig that was on fire. Those kindling kinds of pictures is that the fire started and they it consumes it so quickly there's nothing left but ash. And he's saying that's, that's how the Lord worked. They were quenched like a fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, verse 13. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. One of the ways that we obtain the strength of the Lord, who declares himself to be in the pennings of this psalmist is he's also a God of song. So one of the best things that we can really ever do in our day is to have a song on our heart or to sit and to enjoy the songs that are about God. I enjoy lots of music. Lots of music. I do. I've been influenced by particular types of music, but I truly, thoroughly enjoy lots of music but it's always the spiritual music that brings me into a reconnection with God. It's not anything else. The other music brings me into other peripherals of my human life. I'm not saying bad. When I play the Beach Boys, I'm seeing waves. Uh, surf that I can't surf, but I think that I can surf because, you know, 
when you catch a wave, you're sitting on top of the world, which doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're an Oregonian who really doesn't know how to surf. Then you are sitting on top of your board and you're trying to figure out how to get off it as it's moving you towards a shoreline that's rocky, like some of the beaches that I ruined my brother's board on in San Onofre because I wasn't a surfer. Some of the songs create in us a distraction. It can be pleasant. There are many things in music that cause us to have an appreciation for where we've been, what we've done. If I hear Hawaiian music, I'm brought back to Maui, and I'm brought back to Kauai, and it's delightful in my remembrance of it. But there's nothing like a spiritual song that brings me into a realm that transcends where I'm at, and that's what it's to do. And God is a God who sings over us. We've talked about that before in Zephaniah. He's a God that sings over us. And we have in this church a singing church. You guys are all singers. The Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. And a word that's contemporary would be in the homes of the righteous. And so homes are to be, according to this psalm, a home of rejoicing, a home of salvation, a place where you can say, ah, oh, it feels good to be home. Haven't you found that to be true? It feels good to be home. Even when you've gone to an extraordinary place, when you come from that extraordinary place and you're usually more tired than when you left and less wealthy than when you left, and you get in and you're just going, I'm home, my bed, my room, my table, my refrigerator. I'm home. That's the idea. In the tents of the righteous, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord, verse 16, is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So twice we are told what the Lord does. He does valiantly. That means bravely, heroically, triumphantly. There's nothing that scares him. He is better than any superhero ever that was created in the mind of an imaginator. That's just folklore. It's just fantasy. But God's reality. And he does valiantly with his right hand. And that's just saying he does awesome with the other just tied behind his back. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Verse 17, I shall not die, but live. That's an important statement to make to ourselves. Well, wait, you said that we all have an appointment with death. Well, I didn't actually say it. I quoted it. We do, but we shall not die. We shall live. On the other hand, this may be a promise to somebody that does here, somebody that may be here. Somebody that is afflicted, I shall not die, I shall live. It may be the promise of a healing that God is granting. I'm confident that there are times when I have surely felt I'm going to die. And God would have echoed this refrain in my ear, you shall not die, you shall live. And I'm confident that that happened at least 30 years ago in a jet plane. I thought I was going to die. You shall not die, you shall live. Well, then how shall I live, Lord? I don't see how that's possible. 
well, you will once I get you down on the ground and you'll live for me. Most of my conversation with God was cowardice. But to the conclusion of wanting not to be a coward, this word was confirmed. I did make it back down on the ground. I shall not die but live, and that would be living for the Lord and declare the works of the Lord. That's what our life is for. And sometimes we make far too much of the message of the evangel, believing that if it's not an in-your-face, about the face of God, then you're failing in your mission for God. And I will tell you, a cool glass of water, a thoughtful pie, a lunch or breakfast with somebody, a call or letter, those are profoundly influential in terms of somebody responding to the divine through an act that was simply on your part an extension of who you are. The message of God's goodness is communicated in a very practical expression. And then guess what? You're really effective then when the word is opened. And then when you do pray with somebody because they see the relevancy of what this means in your life and how it translates to somebody in the other part of their life. Very effective. To declare the works of the Lord, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is a guy that says, I've understood when God has come in and has fashioned me in that area of disciplining me. I've enjoyed listening to Ben Corson's teachings because he's in pursuit of really the excellency of just moving through life with zeal and gusto. He takes on mountains intentionally, and I see him do it, and I know what he's doing. He's allowing those expressions to be disciplinary actions of hardship. Now, that's recreational, but I know that in pursuit at times of the discipline of God, God is also able to chasten us through that. In other words, that's refining us, correcting where we were once weak to strengthening us to where we need to be. And I realize that that's very important in my life right now and very important because I see the effect of what happens when strength is removed from a body. Zach, but guess what he's doing? He's working hard in the chastening through a consequence of a situation that he came into. He is now moving back into a strength that little by little we are applauding and we're seeing an attitude, not of regret, but rather of commitment. This is where I'm at, but it's not where I'm going to be. And he really is living a, a lesson that's very important for all of us. We all have degrees of weakness and firmity, but it's not to be an excuse to stop living. We have to take it at that point, and we have to translate it into something that's productive. And it doesn't matter even how young you are or how old you are. And that's why I am so privileged to see vital older people in the, con in the congregation that I'm just really not too many years behind. Because I see in them the youthfulness of serving God. And it's pretty impressive. He has not given me over to death. And sometimes in that chastening, that retooling of yourself, that discipline, we can say, Boy, I'm going to die. No, you're not. 
you're going to live better. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteousness shall through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. There's a gate that will be opened in Israel. The eastern gate will be opened. Jesus will come through it. The gate of righteousness will be opened. The prince of peace will go through it. And all those who love the Lord shall follow him. I will praise you, for you have answered me and become my salvation. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he's answered you. He's become your salvation, saving you from anything, everything, exactly what you need to be saved from, for the purposes of being saved for him. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It speaks of a time in which the temple was being built and a chief cornerstone was rejected. It was a picture that those who ultimately were building the temple would be rejecting the chief cornerstone. They would put in a substitute. It would be found later. Who could have done this? In the same way, the cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. He would be rejected. And you would say, how would a people do that? How do people do that? Because they willfully choose to ignore the presence and reality of God when it couldn't be any clearer because of his goodness and his mercy, which endures forever. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. So the stock markets won't reflect it indefinitely. So what does it mean when we talk about prosperity? Well, there couldn't be any more prosperous statement than to say whatever God has willed in his goodness and mercy to me, that will be my desire, not to have more than I need, but also to be receptive on the abundance that others may take privilege in and how it's come into my life. Spiritual giftings. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a prophetic statement. This is what was said concerning Jesus. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Verse 29 closing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever it opens it closes it leaves us with again a reminder of what we are to be considering of god and speaking to him in reverence and gratitude i will exalt you god is the lord and note he has given us light